Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to the Mike to New Haven podcast with sports personality Mike Cologne. Here's your host, Mike Cologne. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Mike in New Haven podcast. We are live now. It is episode 65. Happy to have you here with us here on YouTube. And of course, later on, everywhere else that you get your uh, podcast on uh, all, all audio platforms, Apple, you name it, we are there. If you haven't checked out the previous episode, please do. It was with New York Knicks sideline reporter, Rebecca Harlow. She was a lot of fun to talk to, talking about especially, of course, this great Knicks team this year that's finally uh, putting the franchise back on the right track. They're 23 and 22. Good win last night against Washington. Uh, so it was fun chatting with Rebecca. This episode I've been looking forward to uh, for a while. As you know, we mix it up on the podcast. We talk to all different folks from all different fields. And today we're getting into the, we're keeping uh, with the uh, sports theme of the podcast. My next guest is simply put a baseball lifer, a native of Stanford, Connecticut, not too far from me here in New Haven. He spent 10 seasons in the major leagues after his playing days concluded he would go into managing, uh, taking over the Texas Rangers in 1985. He'd spend the next seven seasons as their skipper, where he worked for George W. Bush, future president of the United States, after a stint in Japan with the Chibalota Marines and the minor leagues in Norfolk, Virginia. Virginia, excuse me. He found his way to New York City in 1996, where he would take over as manager of the New York Mets. And over the course of the next six seasons, from 1996 to 2002, He'd lead them to five winning seasons, including consecutive postseason appearances in 1999 and 2000. A National League pennant in 2000, of course, when he would take the Mets to the World Series. After his exit from New York in 2002, he has stayed active in sports, and he's currently the executive director of athletics for Sacred Heart University. Bobby V, Bobby Valentine, joins me now in the Mike and Maven podcast. Bobby, welcome. How are you? Hey, Mike. Sorry about the delay, but I'm fine. Thank you, and uh, thanks for that uh, lengthy uh, introduction. <laughs> You missed a whole bunch of stuff, but that's all right. I've done a lot of stuff. Yes, yes. Uh, there's the Red Sox uh, as well. Uh, uh, going back to Japan, a lot, a lot, of course, throughout your life. But too, too much to fit into that introduction. Thank uh, you. Uh, no, no problem, no problem. So you grew up in Stanford, as I mentioned, and your childhood was an eventful one. Take me through it. The whole childhood, my God, <laughs> that'll be your whole show. <laughs> as yeah, much as you're willing to share Stanford hospital you know it's 1950 if anybody knows when the hell that was and uh i was lucky i played little league and babe ruth league and um american legion ball i played high uh high school baseball in in stanford i got drafted out of rip Wom high school in 1968 and um i got to play a lot of sports in high school of course football and baseball i ran track and uh 
Uh, hardly anybody else was playing those sports in those days. So I was one of the best playing, I guess. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, you also won a, a ballroom dancing competition at the Waldo Fristoria, the iconic hotel in New York City. So that's pretty interesting, though. I bet you a lot of, not a lot of people were doing that back then. Yeah, there were a lot of, you know, believe it or not, a lot of athletes were dancing back then. Mm, you know, okay. if you didn't want to, you know, fight on the street corners every day of the week, you, you know, your parents took you to dance lessons. And, uh, yeah, I danced in all those hotels in New York City, uh, the Edison Hotel, Waldorf Astoria. I won a regional contest uh, dance in an international contest at the Fountain Blue Hotel in Miami Beach, Florida. It was mm-hmm. crazy. It was during those youthful days. And, um, you know, we we won in New York and that qualified you to go to Miami and they paid for my trip, my partner's trip, our folks trip. And um, it happened to be the same weekend as a Babe Ruth League tournament. So we went down, we danced. I won on Friday night. I had the hotel paid for my folks and I for the rest of the You might cut out for a second there, Bobby. Said to hell with the week in Florida. So, uh, you know, you know, when a call comes in, it blacks out like that, I guess. And I don't know how to stop it from doing that. So uh, that's that crazy story of my youth. Yeah. (laughs) So you would go on, of course, to play 10 seasons in the major leagues. Most of your time with with California based teams, Uh, you would have a brief stint in New York with the Mets in 1977, which was your first foray with New York. You would play for Joe Torre, which is interesting, considering you would be going up against him in the World Series. Uh, later on, which we'll talk about. So injuries kind of took a toll on you and your career ended in 1979. And there was a period of time where you were running your sports bar out in Stanford, which you're still running now amongst the many ventures that you're involved in. And then in 1985, uh, you came back to Major League Baseball with the Texas Rangers, where, as I mentioned, uh, seven seasons there. You led them to quite a few winning seasons. Of course, this was before they had that great offensive surge in the 90s with Palmero and Gonzalez and Pudge. Um, And you worked for uh, tech, for, few former Texas governor and former eventual United States president, George W. Bush. So take me through those years in Texas and what it was like working for the man they called W. Yeah, well, when I first got there, Tom Grieve, who sat the bench with me uh, in New York during the 77 season, um, became the general manager of the Texas Rangers in 84 and in 85 decided to fire his manager. And at the time, I was in my third year as the third base coach for the New York Mets, also opening up my restaurant in Stanford, Norwalk, and Milford at that time. So I was kind of wearing a lot of hats, and I was running around doing a lot of things. And then from the third base coaching box in Houston, in the Houston Astrodome, one afternoon I went to um, have an interview at Hobby Airport in one of the big private airport uh, airplane hangars at Hart Hobby Airport and Tom Green brought the president and the owner down in the private plane we met we talked we did the whole baseball thing for about three hours I went back to my hotel in Houston and uh, went to the game the next day to manage I mean to be the third base coach for the uh, New York Mets and uh, the phone rang before the game and he says hey can you think you could leave after the game and meet us in Chicago and I said, well, I don't know if there's any flights, but I'll hang around at the airport until I, there's one in and I'll meet you in Chicago. And the next day in Chicago, I was um, the manager of the Texas Rangers at 35 years old. And that time, um, a guy named Eddie Childs on the team. He was a cool 
self-made billionaire out of Oklahoma, where he went to the University of Oklahoma and uh, paid for his tuition by ironing, ironing the shirts of the fraternity boys. And uh, then he went on to make his billions. He bought a, te- a Texas Ranger team uh, while playing cards one night. The owner, Brad Corbett, said to him, hey, Eddie, you own all those planes and all those trucks, and you got all that money, but I know something you don't own. He says, what's that? He said, a baseball team. And after the, the legend has it that after the card game, they went in the back room, and Eddie bought the uh, baseball team. And we were in a, a converted minor league stadium. And all those guys you mentioned, I was the manager when we traded for Palmero. I was the manager when Pudge Rodriguez played his first game in the big leagues and Juan Gonzalez played his first game in the big leagues. But I didn't have that pitching formula. And in uh, 92, with um, I think we were about five games over 500, um, you know, George W., who had bought the team with a group of his partners from Eddie Childs, the billionaire that I uh, already mentioned, um, George said, hey, V, uh, we got to do something different. And I said, yeah, I guess we might as well get a new manager. And uh, next day I went into his office and he said, yeah, I think we need a change. And I, I, I agreed with him. You know, they needed something to happen with the pitching. And I wasn't getting it done. Even with Nolan Ryan and Charlie Huff, who was my teammate. Nolan Ryan, who was my teammate. You know, Mike, I played in his first no-hitter. I was a center fielder in 1973. And then I managed his sixth no-hitter, his seventh no-hitter, his five thousand strikeout game and his 300 win and you know in that 5,000 strikeout game I'll tell you something cool that happened you know he, he had uh, going into the game he had 4,997 strikeouts everyone who bought the ticket felt that they were going to get to see history they were going to see the first human on this planet strike out his 5,000 batter in major leagues and uh, sure enough they, he got to 499 and came to the plate was Ricky Henderson, a great baseball player in his own right. Of Hall course. of fame as we speak, and I managed him with the New York Mets, but at the time, he was a star player for the Oakland A's. And one of the most amazing things happened with the count three and two, and the stadium completely sold out and everyone on their feet. Nolan wound up and threw this 97-mile-an-hour fastball to Ricky Henderson. And as he did, And as the ball started getting to the plate, the entire stadium lit up as though it was one flashbulb because everyone in the stadium was taking a photograph of this moment in their life because they knew that that moment was was going to be historical, right? Mm -hmm. Normally, you don't have that moment. You know, and right now it can happen. So it's three and two. He had four, nine, nine. He throws it 97, he throws it up in the, in the zone, and the remarkable happened, and that is Ricky Henderson swung and fouled the pitch off. And how he fouled off the pitch, because it was one of the great, fastest pitches Nolan threw that night, he and how he did it with the flashes going off, where I was startled by the flashes. He, as a hitter, must have been thinking that someone was shoot, shooting out of the stands. You know, it was, it was like pop, pop. And bright, really, really <laughs> bright in the entire stadium. The next pitch, Nolan threw him a curveball and struck him out for his 5,000 strikeout. But um, uh, it was really a cool event. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure. Yeah. Nolan, one of the great, one of the great uh, figures in, in baseball history, for sure. A, a legendary career. 
uh, across numerous teams, of course, began with the Mets, helped the Mets win the World Series in 1969. So uh, you went to Japan uh, for a little bit, and that was a really interesting foray for you. You'd go back later in the mid-2000s, but 1995 was your first uh, foray into managing overseas. What prompted that opportunity to open up for you? Well, I'd managed Texas, and then I was in, uh, managing AAA for the New York Mets in Norfolk, uh, Virginia. Mm-hmm. And um, there had never been a foreign manager uh, in Japan. All managers since 1947, when their 45, when their uh, league began. I mean, 35 when their league began. Uh, there were always national managers, always Japanese, and usually 100% Japanese. Um, and the owner of this one particular team said, I want to do something different. I want to bring in a, a foreign manager. And he hired a You're probably receiving a, another call. Um, Bobby Valentine here. Yeah. Spent the entire year going around the United States, wa- watching major league games and minor league games and talking with coaches and talking with managers to try to figure out who might be that guy? Who might be the first American that they let in to their ranks? You know, I hate to draw this parallel, but it had some similarity to Jackie Robinson breaking the color barrier in that I was the first Anglo to ever manage in the Japanese professional league. Huh? And right. remember, Japan is probably the most one of the most uh, homogenic uh, societies uh, in, in the world. When I got there, they said that 97.5% of all the people in Japan were 100% Japanese. Wow. Think about that for homogenous, huh? Yeah. I mean, everyone's the same. And now they're going to bring in this, this gaijin, you know, to do it. So, when I was offered the job, um, heck, I was I was flattered. You know, I mean, I was honored. And I went over there and did the best that I could. And we came in second place. And, um, you know, then the world started spinning. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine. But we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Getting fast and, um, uh, and something happened, and I'm putting it in my book, so I don't want to tell it on the podcast but uh yeah then i came back and a year later i was managing the Mets. yeah and that was really where this is a new york centric podcast and so that's really why i wanted to get you on as well we're talking about bobby valentine here in the mike the new haven podcast uh bobby of course managing the mets from 1996 to 2002 amongst many things he's done in his life and when you got there they had just fired the late dallas green and uh, Dallas, uh, you know, was was run out, and all of a sudden they bring you in. Now, this is a team that had not had a winning season since 1990 and were floundering, but there were pieces there. Of course, John Franco was a stalwart for many years for the Mets. He was their closer at the time. Ray Ardonez was coming up. Uh, he was wowing people with his amazing defensive play. Edgardo Alfonso was there as well, and he was starting uh, his career. So there were pieces. Um, and then, of course, December of 96, 
John Olerud got there via trade and he wound up being a big piece for you for a couple of years as well. And so from winning 74 games, I believe, 74 around there, 71 games actually in, in 96, you won 88 in 97, uh, which not a lot of people were expecting. So if you have, besides, of course, the influx of, of, of supreme talent, um, what would you attribute uh, being able to turn the Mets around so quickly to? Well, I don't know that it was quick. It was when you look at the calendar, but it was a it was a chore. It was an everyday uh, uh, struggle uh, to figure out uh, the pieces. You know, if it's Met centric, uh, they'll remember that in '96 the aforementioned players were there, but the core of that team was Lance Johnson, Bernard Gilkey, and Todd Hundley, and they were in all, all the three of them were offensive force. Uh, Hundley was, um, you know, setting records with home runs. Gilkey was hitting 300. Lance Johnson was getting 200 hits. Um, so, um, and they had three pitchers that they were going to um, ride to the promised land on their backs. You know, that was Bill Pulsifer and um, and uh, Paul Wilson and Jason Isringhausen and Jason Isringhausen exactly. And as it turned out, uh, with great deliberation and evaluation and, and long talks, because the organization, uh, the entire organization when I got there, was really uh, responsible for that core. You know, the front office was responsible for that core. The minor league development people were responsible for that core. So that's the way they wanted to do it. And uh, I had to try to convince Joe McElvain that that wasn't the way. It wasn't going to be, um, you know, the three pitchers uh, like they had in 69. They're going to develop them from within, and you're going to have the offense, and this isn't the offense. So uh, one of the keys was getting John Olerud to, um, to show the organization that there was a different type of offensive player out there that could really be a difference maker, a guy who got, you know, six pitches at crap bat, a guy who walked more than he struck out, a guy who could hit to all fields and play great defense. You know, that that's a cornerstone type player, even though he's not up the middle. And we basically tried to build a team um, with the, with a philosophy that I had offensively of, you know, limiting the strikeouts, increasing the walks, and hitting the strikes for extra base hits. You know, it was kind of novel in those days, but that's what Fonzie became. That's what Mike Piazza was when he came and got us. And it was it was not what Ray Ordonez was. I know you're wearing his jersey, but, <laughs> you know, yeah, and I like that. But um, he was a real outlier. You know, Ray was the first... Um, he was the first Cuban to literally jump the fence, you know, and leave the Cuban national team and and come in exile and be a major league baseball player. And he literally, and I think it was in Alabama, the Cuban national team was playing in one of these international tournaments, and he literally ran after a foul ball and jumped the fence and kept running. And his <laughs> car, yeah, yeah, the car waiting for him that he jumped in and they went over to the embassy, yeah, or to the Capitol building. And, you know, that, and then Ray became, I'm pretty sure that's how it happened. Ray became the first um, Cuban to uh, play in the major leagues and he could really field. 
Oh yeah. He, he was, he did things that no one else could do. And, uh, oh, for sure. yeah. including catching, he could turn his back on home plate and run full speed into the outfield and catch that ball over his shoulder as good as anyone this side of Derek Jeter. I mean, I've always said if he if he knew how to hit, he'd be one of the greatest shortstops of all time just because his defense was so amazing. I mean, that, that double play combination with him and Fonzie for those years was just – uh, nothing short of, of of brilliant, and if you if you haven't watched his highlights, for those of you out there watching or listening later on, take take the time to do it if you have some time because he was a defensive wizard. So ninety eight. Yeah, let, let me just jump on the hitting thing with Ray. The mm. reason Ray didn't hit, Ray had really good hand bat skills, mm-hmm. so he could hit the ball with the head of the bat in a very consistent way. And if you go back and look at the articles, it makes me laugh when I watch TV today. But I had I had a, a philosophical, an open philosophical um, argument for years with front office people, scouts, and people in the media about Ray Ordonez hitting ground balls. They didn't like it when he hit the ball in the air. And I tried to get him to hit the ball in the air. Yeah. Because he's a right-handed hitter without great speed, and hitting the ball on the ground was fruitless. We, he hit the double plays. I didn't want two outs. One out's enough for me. I wanted yeah. to hit the ball in the air and try to drive the ball into the gaps, and then at least I'd have one out that I had to worry about. But with a man on base and Ray's lack of willingness to get the sign from the third base coach, that was another little situation that Ray had. I can never trust <laughs> the fact that he got the sign. And sometimes I even thought that he goofed around and got the sign and decided not to swing at the hit and run. You know, just so the yeah. guy got thrown out and say, oh, what the hell are you putting a hit and run on with me? Let me try to hit a double or something like that. I don't know. But yeah, I- he was a classic. He was, a he, he was 99. He was actually pretty good. I mean, 60 RBIs in 99. He had the yeah. greatest time against Philadelphia. Hit 258. He, he was, he, yeah. was the best offensive no, he year. Was, he was finally hitting doubles and driving runs in. Yes. Yeah. Hitting the ball in the air, not on the ground. Finally. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely for sure. So 98 is the offseason. Well, obviously 98 in general is a turning point for the franchise. No, the playoffs did not come that year. He won 88 games again. He just missed out by a game. But Piazza got there in May. Uh, the Marlins were tearing down their World Series winning squad, and then Piazza gets traded initially to the Marlins, who obviously are going to flip him, and they flip him to the Mets. Al Leiter also got there uh, from the Marlins. Um, and then, of course, that offseason in, of 98, Robin Ventura, another great hitter and infielder for you guys. And then Armando Benitez to shore up the bullpen. And from the farm system, Roger Cedeno and Benny Agbayani. And you mentioned Ricky Henderson. And this team went out, and obviously there were some bumps in, uh, along the way. That September of 99 was uh, – uh, uh, definitely a doozy, but you won 97 games. You had to go play Cincinnati in a one-game playoff. You got all the way to the uh, game six of the NLCS. So first for that 99 season between the Subway Series and those great games against the Yankees and then that epic playoff run from beating Arizona and, and scaring the heck out of Atlanta, just take me through really one of the – what Joe Morgan, the late great Joe Morgan, described as the greatest Mets show since 1986. Well, thanks, Joe Morgan. Yeah, that was a cool team. I love that team. And remember, you mentioned the the Subway Series. I'm not 
complaining here, but you know, we had to play the Yankees twice. Everybody else was doing their rivals once. We had to play the, the Yankees twice. The, Atlanta never had to play it, their divisional foe twice of the, with the likes of the Yankees. Mm-hmm. You know, so that was really those series took a lot out of you. You know, they were interleague series in those days in '97 in the first year. Hell, they shut off, they shut down the Major Deacon Highway and the Willis Avenue Bridge so that we can take our bus from Shea Stadium to Yankee Stadium. People were backed up on the entrance ramps for 20 minutes as the motorcycle police stopped all the traffic. Yeah, those were, I mean, those days were amazing. I mean, you pull in the Yankee Stadium, there would be thousands of people yelling and screaming and waving stuff. They wouldn't let us drive to the ballpark because they feared our safety if we won and tried to get out of the Bronx. You know, it was it was kind of crazy. Um, but, yeah, to win 90, in 99, to win 97, have that one-game playoff, you know, lose the flip uh, of the coin um, – I love that team. That's all I could say. I wish I had one more shot with that team. I, I, when, uh, you know, when John Olerud wasn't signed back, a little of my heart uh, left with me because um, he was just, um, you know, he's one of my disciples and he was, he, he personified what I wanted in a baseball player. If he could run, I'll tell you what, he's the slowest guy in the field other than Ramon Ventura. And I, so that means I had two of the slowest in the league. On the, on the same team, sometimes right. running behind each other. But, um, you know, if, if he could run, he would have been one of the all-time, all-time great players who, to ever play. And, and you know, he's, he's a yeah. pitcher in college and uh, a batting champ in the American League. And, um, yeah, that whole team was cool. But, and you know what he do? You know what Olerud, the, the, the specialness of Olerud, which probably would be measured today but wasn't appreciated at all when he played I used to call, you know, they talk about range, defensive range. Well, I used to have a, a little chart uh, where I measured the range on the base. Mm-hmm. Okay. Like how far up the right field line he would go to catch a ball and still stay on the base. Mm-hmm. How far he could go and fall territory toward the dugout and reach up and keep his foot on the base to catch that ball that hardly anybody else did. And, of course, those pits out in front on the one hop, he was spectacular on. So, you know, all those guys were gold glove players because John Olerud was their first baseman. Oh, of course, yeah, that was the greatest infield ever. The fewest errors ever committed uh, yeah. by an infield. And, you know, to, Al Leiter talked about it. You know, to have that uh, infield behind you, I mean, Comfort's key, especially in big game situations. And I think any pitcher would have felt comfortable having that infield behind them for sure. Yeah, it was fun. It was really fun. And you know what he, what John was great at doing too. It, I don't know if you remember the games, Mike, but you know, I, uh, I had all these crazy defensive alignments, you know, I, I was shifting, uh, as the pitcher was pitching, you know, I used to have guys running to their position from where they weren't to where they should be as the ball is being delivered to the plate. You know, I used to have the infield crash and the infield in without the hitter knowing if the infield was going to be in or back because they would start back, 
And then as the pitcher would pitch, they would crash in because a lot of guys in those days with a man on third base and the infield black would just try to hit a ground ball at second base if they were a right-handed hitter to get an RBI or a left-handed hitter just hit hit a ball to the shortstop and get a get an RBI. And we would we'd crash, and Ray was good at that. And John would also stand in front of the base runner because my left-handed pitchers had terrible pickoff moves. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Except for Hampton, he was pretty good. He had a decent decent one. But remember Glendon Rush and Al Leiter and Johnny Franco and uh, Dennis Cook. Cookie wasn't bad. Cookie had a balk move that wasn't bad, but he had a really big leg kick. And, I mean, if you went on first move with any of these guys, there was a good chance you were at second base. So I would have Olerud stand in front of the runner as the runner took the lead. And just as the pitcher made the first move, which is the time the hitter has, uh, the runner has to take off to steal the base on the pitcher and his first move, John Olerud would break back to first base slightly just with a with a fake and his timing was impeccable impeccable whatever impeccable is <laughs> he was he he was precise and yeah. uh you know he kept the runners up for his face all of a sudden they weren't stealing on us when our left-handed pitchers were on the mound especially the Atlanta Braves and that that was kind of a um you know defensive uh, element to our game that helped us win some games. Yeah, he would shade the runner. He would dance back and forth with the runner. You know, he'd yeah. keep the runner That's off balance, which was, yeah, which was really, obviously, as you just described, very important, especially for the pitchers. And, and so, you know, it doesn't hurt to have a great offense, of course. I mean, Mike Mike Piazza in his prime, the numbers he put up. Robin Ventura was an MVP candidate in 99. John Olerud hit routinely at or above 300 in his seasons uh, with you guys. And Fonzie, I mean, same thing before the injuries got to Fonzie. Fonzie was a uh, a remarkably productive player. And even Ricky Henderson at 40 something years old hit 312 or something like that. And, and yeah, he was, he, he played sparingly or, yeah. you know, played. When Winnie Agbayani emerged. And he had a, he had a really good year for us. Ricky's the greatest player ever played for me, obviously. Yeah. Well, yeah, a lot of, a lot of people would agree with that. So it doesn't end so well in 99. It was a great game six back and forth, but obviously the Kenny Rogers walk and the season ended in heartbreak, but you guys came back even with the departure of John Olerud, Todd Zeal came in and he was pretty good for you guys in that first season. Derek Bell came in and unfortunately got hurt in the playoffs, but had a good regular season as well. Uh, Benny Agbayani continued his rise and Jay Payton after battling injuries finally was healthy and had a productive year as well. And so you get to the playoffs you knock out Barry Bonds, Jeff Kent, and the Giants, uh, who were the number one team in the National League. I think the league that year in general. You go to the NLCS, no Atlanta this time, St. Louis. You get them out of there in five. And then, of course, comes the main event. And a lot had happened over the summer of 2000 between the Mets and the Yankees. Obviously, there was the whole beef between Clemens and Piazza. Piazza got pained by Roger in July. And that's a, a side story into this major story, which is the first Subway Series in New York since 1956. I mean, you talk about it being a crazy time for the Subway Series during the regular season. Now you're playing the Yankees in the World Series. So just 
when Timo caught that ball in center field and then David Justice hits that big home run in the Bronx and you know you're getting a Subway series, take me through, I guess, that week leading up to game one at Yankee Stadium from your perspective. Well, you know, I don't think hmm, I don't think there was that, that much time off, was there? From game five of your series to game six of Yankees Mariners, let me let me check that. Let me check. Yeah, I I think um, you know there there was week week clinched it, then they clinched it. I think we had three days of practice, but it was crazy. Um, you know, I I really wish I could remember, but um, the city was on fire. Everybody you ran into. Uh, was talking Subway Series. Did you look it up, Mike? How- yes, the Yankees clinched uh, against the Mariners on October 17th, the night before you guys clinched at Shea on uh, the 16th. And when did we open up? The World Series of 2000 opened up. I'm looking to pull it up here. It opened up at Yankee Stadium October 21st, which I think was a Saturday. Yeah, four days after they clinched. Yeah, so, yeah, it was um- – you know, I mean, it was everything. It was what you wanted. It was um, it, it, it was a circus that um, was going to continue to have a good act. You know, uh, every everyone's talking about it. You didn't have to be a baseball fan. Everyone knew the Yankees were playing the Mets. And, um, you know, it seemed like it was, um, you know, just yesterday, but it has been over 20 years that um, during that season, one of the things that goes um, – unnoticed is that you know ray got hurt and so when ray got hurt um if if ray didn't get hurt okay if 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 but if ray didn't get hurt uh we would have had melvin mora for that entire season okay and melvin was coming into his own melvin was the dude melvin could hit anyone knew that he could could play any position and when ray got hurt i said in the paper and said to him and said to the team that we were going to go with Melvin at shortstop. And a couple days later, he got traded to Baltimore for Mike Bordick. And Mike Bordick's a terrific guy and he was a terrific player. Turned out that that was a nice thing, except for Bordick <laughs> broke his hand. And we wound up playing Kurt Abbott in, in the last games of the, of the World Series. And Kurt was a nice player too, you know what I mean? Heck, uh, he started against Andy Pettit, got a hit the first time up, and then got picked off. How about Mike Piazza and and Kurt Abbott both getting picked off in a World Series game by a pitcher that everyone, that my mother knew, had the best pickoff move in baseball. And I had two guys in the World Series after we said, you don't even have to take a lead, dude. Don't even don't stand with your foot on your on the bag if you want, and then get your second dairy lead. He could pick your ass off when you think he's not throwing the first. He's throwing the first when you think he's throwing the home. And sure, I mean, my excuse me, the S H I T word, but we had two guys picked off, and then we had also an out in that game where Todd uh, hit a ground ball off his foot. He went foul, and he stood in the box. And then it rolled back fair. And Brosius just picked it up and threw it to first base. So basically, we gave the, the Yankees three outs in the first game of the World Series and took them to the brink for them to beat us. Uh, so it, it, it was a spectacular time. 
Didn't Jay Payton uh, have a moment like that too? Where yeah, think, yeah, he he thought the ball was going foul and it kicked back there. Todd yeah. Pratt stayed at third. Yeah, it was a a series of. I mean, there was of course the big one that everybody points to is when Timo thought that Todd hit the ball out. Which yeah. I don't blame Timo because I would have thought the ball was out too. Me it too. Off the very top of the wall, and Jeter made a great throw home. But I gotta I gotta ask you: You were in the dugout when Clemens chucked the bat at Piazza. When you saw that, take me through that moment from your perspective. What went through your mind? Oh, just that he, he was out of his mind. You know, I didn't. I didn't think that there was um, anything that was a, a serious situation, uh, other than that Roger was out of his mind, and he just did something as stupid as that, anything I've ever seen in baseball. I didn't think of that like you know, might get hit in the head or anything or anything like that. I just, what is he doing? But what I, I thought my job was to do is to seize the moment. And, uh, you know, if it wasn't the World Series, I probably could have convinced the umpires to throw him out of the game just by making it seem like it was such a big deal. Right. You know, I tried to make it seem like it was a big deal talking with the umpires. Um, but, I, you know, I mean, I was out in the field. I saw Roger, he didn't he didn't know what he was doing. It wasn't like he was going to throw a thirty or twenty ounce object a uh, hundred feet and hurt someone with it, you know. Yeah, I yeah. think I didn't know this until Joe Torre wrote his book called The Yankee Years, which is a great read. And I never knew this. Roger went up the tunnel after that inning was over, and he pitched obviously a great game that night. He went up up, uh, up through the Yankee Stadium tunnel, sat down. The late Mel Stoudemire had to control him because he sat down and started bawling. And he told Mel Stoudemire, I didn't mean to do that, which I guess lends credence to your theory. And Roger had, you know, as, as, as I told Ken Davidoff, a great writer for the New York Post when he was on the show, Roger Clemens was and is, and I say this admittedly as a Yankee fan, that I don't hate the Mets. I got nothing against the Mets, but Roger Clemens was and is a very complicated individual, and we'll leave it at that. And so that World Series was tough. Believe, but, but Mike, he's the best pitcher to ever pitch. Oh, yeah. He had seven sure. Cy Young Awards. Yeah. You know how good yeah. that dude was? Yeah. You know how good he was? He was very good. He was good. Barry Bonds as a pitcher. Oh, of course. Barry's I'm, the greatest hitter, and away. he's the greatest pitcher ever. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Roger Clemens is, is one, of, one of the all-time greats. I, I'll never take that away from him. Um, so that World Series, it was, it was five games, but it was close. It didn't go your way. I mean, Jeter was just on fire that series. Uh, and obviously that last out when Mike hit the ball, a lot of people thought that ball was gone off the bat, but Bernie caught it. Um, and so you guys moved into 2001 and 82 and 80, a late playoff push. It was a rough season. And of course, then came the events of uh, September the 11th, um, which, you know, uh, the Mets and the Yankees after sports returned to the city uh, became front and center for it as part of the healing process. So, I mean, you, you were by this point in New York for five years. Uh, if you, if for all you older school, old school Mets fans out there, you, you probably remember at Shea Stadium, they had the layout at the top of the uh, Mets billboard in right field of uh, the New York City skyline. The World Trade Center was featured prominently in that. And, um, so when that whole, when that month came and, and that tragedy took place, I guess take me through just the aftermath and the and the mood in the Met locker room and, and I guess trying to help New Yorkers in your own way heal from such a thing. Yeah, it's hard to um, describe all that stuff. It's just a lot of emotion. You know, there's there's a lot a lot of emotion going on. You know, when you're dealing with um, um, the uncertainty, the fear that brings 
uh, fear to your heart and its uncertainty that causes the fear, not so much different than uh, the virus, you know, that we're experiencing now that, uh, you know, it, it's mysterious and it, it scares you and you don't know how to act when you have fear of something or someone harming you. At that time, you know, we were trying to figure out who the bad guys were. You know, I was thinking about enlisting and seeing if I could, you know, have a regiment or something that needed leadership. But I, I was crazed. It was, it was a, it was a very uh, confusing time for all individuals. And then as soon as, as soon as you started get to meet people who were personally uh, affected by uh, the horrific event, and soon as you, you got to see the the mass of rubble that was down on ground zero and see the faces of the people, the soot that they were covered in and how thick it was and how the, the rescue mi mission went without rescuing one person, you know, and then to have the funerals and the grief and the, the bagpipes and the, and the orphans and the widows and, and, uh, I mean, it, it it never stopped. It it was a, as emotionally uh, troublesome period that I had ever ever experienced, and um, I guess I'm okay because of it. But um, it, it it wasn't a good time. And no, so it, it really I can't describe. You know, playing baseball and all that stuff afterwards. Um, um, you know, I, I, I wasn't, my head wasn't right for that. Yeah, it was, it was tough. I'll be having on a uh, retired bomb squad detective this Monday uh, who was with the NY, was not with the NYPD at the time, but um, it's, it hit close to home for him because he was at the trade center that day. And oh. uh, a colleague of his uh, who was in the bomb squad, a detective by the name of Claude Richards was among the 23 New York city police officers who didn't wow. return that day. So uh, I'll be talking with him about that. Give him my job. Yeah, I will. I will. Uh, for sure. Yeah, it was kind of weird for me, you know, because the commander in chief used to sit in my office with his feet up on my desk. And when I come into the office in Texas, when George W. was the managing general partner on my team and to think that I would sit there and kibitz with him and that my eight of my guys had been at the Oval Office with him in in April and and. Uh, just talked baseball and laughed and had fun. And now here's a guy who's standing on the rubble saying we will never forget and, and asking me and others to continue to try to go about the world in a normal way. Try not to let that fear dis disrupt what Americans do together. And, you know, the game coming back that everyone talks about, Mike's home run obviously was the most about thing that. I've ever seen. Yeah, But really the, the remarkable uh, part of that game was the New York Met team and the Atlanta Braves team embracing each other before the game. Never yeah. be done before in a major league game. Never will be done again. I'll guarantee you that. But we we did it with true uh, caring of our fellow American and our fe fellow human being because we knew they were going through what we were going through, that they were experiencing fear and anger and sadness all at the same time, just as we were. And we were in it together. And to play that game, a lot of the guys, even Chipper Jones says, when Mike hit the home run, he kind of felt good about it. 
you had to feel good about it. It was it was the changing of the guard. It was the time the frowns were allowed to turn upside down, and it was done with a crack of the bat. So that's all really cool. Yeah. Yeah, and of course the Yankees run to the World Series uh, in the aftermath as well, and 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 there are those three. I, as even if you're a Mets fan, those three nights at Yankee Stadium in the World Series were just incredible um, as well. And so um, you know, the at the end of the road came in 2002. Uh, it wasn't really your fault. Some acquisitions were made by the front office that just didn't pan out. Move on, Alomar Bernitz. Uh, so you moved on, and uh, the Mets the Mets went through a couple of years being bad, and Willie Randolph brought him back, and we'll see what happens with them now. Things are looking up. For very much, which is good for baseball, good for the city of New York. And you did some other things, Japan. You went back to the Red Sox uh, briefly, which, you know, didn't work out. But now you're in this position at Sacred Heart. Uh, I'm not going to keep you too long. We'll wrap up in a bit. But uh, just take me through, I guess, uh, what you do at Sacred Heart and what you like most about it. Well, I build things. I build uh, coaches. I build uh, student athletes. I build uh, fields and scoreboards and uh, – you know, stadiums uh, with fundraising money. Um, yeah, it's been fun. I've done, you know, the the experience in Japan, uh, I, I don't mean to slight it because it's part of my life. It was as good an experience, six-year experience, as I had in any six-year span of my life. Um, but, yeah, these six, seven years here as executive director of athletics at Sacred Heart University, um, you know, I guess I've done some stuff. I've done enough stuff for them to name a building after me. I've done enough stuff to... Uh, increase uh, all of the female wages of all of our coaches uh, up to be equal to all the male rate, uh, uh, salaries. And, and I did that four years ago. And, um, you know, I've um, added teams. I have uh, the only uh, women's uh, wrestling team in New England and uh, a women's rugby, r- rugby team all playing Division One. Uh, you know, I have a hockey team tonight playing in, a, in the regionals at Webster Bank and um, a volleyball team that will probably go to the nationals along with uh, two of our wrestlers who went to national championships. So a lot of th- good things have gone. I, I have a lot of really good coaches, 30, 30, 33 Division One teams, and um, that's head coaches and, and assistant coaches. So we, we have quite the town hall. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. A lot of work has been done and a lot of work will, I'm sure will be done going forward, especially once this pandemic concludes. And so uh, I've kept you uh, long enough and I thank you for doing this. It's really a treat for me to be able to talk with you. Forget my Yankee fandom, just as a baseball fan. Uh, it's really cool just to be able to have you here. And, and uh, this has been a, a great episode, like I said. So it is now time for a segment of this podcast. The only segment that we do, it is called Rapid Fire. Five hit and run questions for me and five answers from you. Are you ready? Okay. All right. So first, I mean, you talked about favorite players that you managed. You, as I men, as I mentioned previously, you spent ten years in the big leagues. Favorite teammate or teammates you've ever had? Well, that's uh, a tie between Tom Pachurik and Billy Buckner. Yeah, Tom Pachurik was my first roommate in in uh, professional ball. Billy Buckner was my first roommate in the big leagues, as well as my roommate in college. And um, yeah, there's you know Bill. Right to the end was a dear friend, and Tom Petrarch is still a very, very good friend, great teammates, great people. Yeah. All right. You, of course, Japan. Favorite thing about Japan? Probably the food. Well, that food's awesome, for sure. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, third, yeah, I have to change this question up a bit because you talked about favorite players that uh, you managed or managed. Uh, favorite, uh, so how, how do I ask this question? I don't know. Most, <laughs> most eccentric player you've ever managed? 
Well, probably Turk. You know, he was he was he was different. You know, Turk Wendell was really uh, he was a great guy, great teammate. Just had a lot of weird things going on. You know, the necklace. The, 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 yeah, yeah, the necklace. You know, he he would sit in the trees at four and five in the morning in Greenwich and click clear some of the deer out of some of the uh, private estates there, you know, and then come to the ballpark. He, he was a classic dude. Yeah. He's, he's one of baseball's great characters. So fourth favorite thing about New York city. Oh, the food. Same thing as Japan. Yeah. Can't yeah. blame you there. Mine too. Mine too. Uh, fifth and finally, knowing what you know now and experiencing what you've experienced throughout your life. If you can go back in time, knowing what you know now again, and give advice to a young Bobby, Bobby Valentine, what would you tell him? To stick to your guns and to make sure that conviction, uh, along with honesty, is uh, the path that you uh, that you take. Yeah. All right. And I and that was the advice that uh, I got when I was young. I think I always did it anyway. That's good. Yeah, it's it's a, it's not a bad way to live one's life. So that concludes episode sixty five of the Mike Demahaven podcast. I can't thank you enough. Uh, for coming by, Bobby. Before we go, we like to uh, just promote ourselves and then we'll get out of here. And before I promote myself, is there anything that you would like to plug? No, Mike, you did a great job. I'm sorry I was late. Um, you know, I want everyone to, to get Apple TV and uh, watch the greatest beer run ever. I'm uh, part of that production that's going to be filmed in Australia in the next couple of weeks uh, mm-hmm. with uh, uh, director Peter Farley and his Oscars, uh, along with... Um, cast uh, a great cast um yeah that and uh yeah if, if my book ever gets out buy it you'll like it yeah i'm sure i will and uh, i'll promote myself if you're uh, watching this podcast for the first time because you want to check out bobby v stick around i'd love to have you my youtube channel is mc's audio mc apostrophe s audio and everywhere that you get your podcast on uh, the audio uh, platforms that's out there uh check it out as well it's mike the new haven m-i-c apostrophe d in New Haven, where you can find more great conversations like this one out there. And tune in this Monday because live at 1 p.m., another first-time author and uh, retired NYPD bomb squad detective Don Sadawi, who is most, uh, or best known, I should say, for investigating and solving the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, uh, will join me here for his experience to, uh, to relay his experiences about not just the bomb squad, but his really extraordinary life in general. Uh, By his book, it's called Rendered Safe, Tales of an NYPD Bomb Tech. You will love it. Uh, so that's all on my end. Of course, Twitter, Mike in New Haven, M-I-K-E in New Haven, LinkedIn, Mike Cologne. And on behalf of Bobby Valentine, I am Mike Cologne, and we will see you 